And welcome to Grow Radio. And we're going about gathering the fruits of our labour just now. Well, some of our fruits on the way. I'm out in the greenhouse, the new, and some things have worked and grown bonny. Other things have not grown bonny. I'll mention my auberge. I tried growing aubergine for the first time this year. They're still the size of peanuts. I've got another fine recipe for a good pal for aubergines. I'll tell you about that later. Again, it's a time when we find out if we planted too much or near enough or the wrong varieties. As I've said before, don't worry, we're here to help. And we can enjoy the food and recipes that will be forthcoming in this very episode as well. As this year goes on, mere and mere folk are asking about food to grow vegetables and fruit in their gardens. It's a sign of the times, farmer, I hear to economise and find it wise on making the budget stretch further. Things that have worked this year? Well, salads. I'm still enjoying the salad leaves. Oriental varieties especially. Peas, beans, ingans and the carrots over there, they're looking great. But this being an Al Robinson tomato house, there's going to be a bumper tomato crop again. They're just hanging. And the fact that the greenhouse is situated inside my wall garden just makes life in the garden that bit easier, I have to admit. And of course, wall gardens create that special environment and climate. And we'll be hearing more about their attributes and the innovations and the inventions that went on around the land, building the Scottish wall garden. Fit a legacy we have. But I cannot wonder about her much. I need to join the buds in the garden team, sitting, able and willing to entreat you to their wisdom and their company. Good banter, <laughs> usually a bit of cheek thrown in for good measure. And there might be a lot of cheek in this episode. Our cook, Claire Patterson, has run off. Well, she's a Wawier family on holiday, and this being school holidays. So we're going to try to surprise you with our own favourite recipes, and some we've been gain. We can try. <laughs> we're not as good as Claire, but we can try. So, one with me, up the garden path again, into our virtual sheds to meet the buds. I'm Frida Morrison. Welcome to Grow Radio. And welcome to the sheds. Let me introduce you to the team, ready, willing and able to sort out your gardens with our big or small pots, windy boxes or just nothing. Just enjoy the banter and the fresh air. And we've got plenty tea for armchair gardeners. So to the team, the heat gardener himself, a past curator at the Botanic Gardens in Edinburgh, vice chair of the National Trust for Scotland, welcome David Mitchell. Morning, Frida. And how do you find? Oh, I'm dandy. Melting a wee bit after all that heat, but uh, we're, we're fine. We're dandy. Aye, we're going to be speaking about the heat and the effect on you, but the effect on plants. We're <laughs> not worried about you. We're worried about the plants. Oh, no, plants. You're, again, you're not worried about me. That's all right. <laughs> okay. And in the Embra, we're soon sorter, and Arthur Keane-Gerner, Richie Werner. Hello. Hey, how's it going? Nice to hear you, oh, Dave. Fine. Nice to hear you, Frida. What's happening, everybody? 
oh, happening, it's just not happening. It's <laughs> trying to get anything in for, for the hairstyles. Aye. Abdi <laughs> fine with you, family fine, being oh, in the yeah, garden. we're grand. We're just enjoying the last of those hazy, warm days out in the garden. It's quite good. We get a lot of shade in our garden, which at normal times is a bit annoying, but actually it's been quite good because it's been a bit cool. And I've been able to get on with things and cut back everything that's been going daft. And yeah, it's been good. So you've been basically learning to chill in the heat. Chilling in the heat. Aye, it's a new thing. That's Chilling it. In <laughs> Chilling in the heat. Okay, at this point, I usually introduce our cook, and as I said, Claire Patterson, Sheila Haber, has run off. Ah. I will be sitting there saying, nay winner. <laughs> oh. <laughs> we run off as well. But she's on holiday with her family, and we just kind of grudge her a, a wee break, especially for us, eh, Dave? Or just you wait till she hears what we do when she's no here. Okay. <laughs> we'll okay. be in trouble. <laughs> she'll be saying, how can you say that that way? Shouldn't have said it that way. No, she'll be, she encourages us. So Richie, Dave and myself are going to surprise you. We are in recipes. Some of our own invention, kind of, and some for chums. Okay, let's get started in the garden first. Quick question. As I said, aubergines, my aubergines are knee growing. Far of I can wrong, Dave, you've seen the footies. The knee bonnie. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, just laughing. That's right. <laughs> I'm glad you didn't see them, Richie. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. But you can, aubergines are relatives of tatties, and they're a lot more fickle to grow. You know, they're like tomatoes. They need a lot of attention. For starters, they worship the heat, and they need to be growing inside in Scotland, in a polytunnel or in a greenhouse. You know, if you sow them in March and April, you need to sow them at about 21 degrees centigrade to get them to germinate, and then you wean them off, get them into seven centimetre pots, or you can buy plants. But the thing about buying plants is you don't care whether they've been checked or no. Mm -hmm. Whatever you do, put them out in the ground, in the greenhouse, pinch the side shoots regularly, then I let them dry out. They hate to dry out. You know, you need to pay heed to the water and at all times. If you can get them gone right, they may be good enough to need a steak. You should give them a liquid feed with a high potash liquid feed. And they love humidity. They love humidity. Mm. You know, you should keep the ground moist around about them. You should mist them over early in the morning before the sun gets up. Get a wee damp room around them in the afternoon. But mining no scorch the leaves. They just basically can't abide gone below 20 degrees centigrade. Oh. Basically... I think, you know, they're an awful fuss for four or five big fruits of yin plant. But if you're going to give them a go, moneymakers are good, dependable, tough variety and long purple. They get things like white fly and blossom end <sighs> rot and other things. But so, so do your tomatoes. Now, mm -hmm. I can use one they're looking very great, Frida. But I think you need to give them another go. And, I, I, you know, and just give a wee bit more attention to them. You know, it's they've not had a fair season this year to try, really. You know, it's been hot in minute and cold right. the next. But Dave, they sound like temperamental little brats. I'm not going to try oh. again. I'll just buy them. I mean, I can. It sounds like I've given up. I have. But I mean, oh, you're saying everything. You just want to put them in the ground. Try gun. a few in a grow bag. A grow bag, maybe not the answer. I'll try, try one a few more in time. A grow bag. But if they're going to you continue know. being temperamental little brats, I need getting in again. Mm. You know, tuck, tuck pity on the wee continental nope. characters. You know. Yeah, I'm just good bonnie. Bonnie folk. <laughs> 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 we'll no see forties of them next year, <laughs> Richie. Oh, I'll send Richie my forties are sad. Uh, 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 anyway, okay. 
I'm going to put myself on the line with the first recipe. And as you heard, I've tried to grow aubergine because I love them in various dishes. So this recipe is for Robbie Rose, husband of pal Helene, and Robbie is a fantastic cook, I have to add. So this is Robbie's aubergines with tahini. Aubergines with tahini, folks. Right, here's the method. You preheat the oven to 200 degrees C, cast mark 6. Line a large baking tray with baking parchment. This is Robbie's words, near mine. Cut the aubergines widthways into one centimeter slices. Lightly brush both sides with oil. Season well and place in a single layer on the prepared tray. Roast for 20 to 30 minutes, turning halfway through until tender. Meanwhile, whisk together the tahini, the yogurt, lemon juice, four teaspoons of lawata and the honey into a smooth dressing. Arrange the roasted aubergine slices on a serving dish, slightly overlapping, drizzle with the dressing and sprinkle with mint leaves, okay? Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think I've just realised I should have dealt you the ingredients first. Ah, I was going <laughs> Okay, here's the ingredients, right. <laughs> Two medium aubergines. I've got a row for you, clear. Two medium <laughs> aubergines, three tablespoonfuls of olive oil, one tablespoonful of tahini, four tablespoonfuls of Greek yogurt, one half tablespoonful of lemon juice, two tablespoonfuls of clear honey, and a small handful of mint leaves, or one tablespoonful of dried mint. Now, is that all clear? Is that what you have that to do? That sounds really great. It sounds actually yeah. fairly easy to make. Well done for remembering the ingredients. <laughs> Can, I don't think I get that far with my one, so uh, yeah, let's see what happens when <laughs> oh, you get to me. <laughs> well, so any questions so far? Do you want to try that? that yeah, my lovely. tummy's rumbling, actually. Oh, it started already. Oh, it that's started a good already. Sign. That's a good sign. That's a good sign. Right, okay, so if anybody wants to get a copy of that, give a shout, because as I said, I forgot the ingredients right at the start, and they probably say, wait a minute, what are we doing with this? Right, we will learn as we will go on. Richie. Okay. okay, so it's over to you next time. Here, okay. Oh boy. Thanks to Robbie Rose for that recipe. I've yet to try it, but it soon's lovely. And Does easy. sound no. good. Dave has been hulking about in his library again, looking at the wonders of the wars, the wall gardens of Scotland, engines of the land, he calls them. And they were in so many ways to produce food in difficult climates and areas and produce food for communities as well. Now, Dave will tell us more about the innovation and the sheer magic of the wars in the Minty. Part one coming up, part two later in the programme. First, David, clarify, this meant be a wall garden. Well, as I said to you the other day when we were speaking about all this on Scots Radio 89, when we had an in-depth look at their history, it goes way back before the Middle Ages. It meant different things in different eras. And folks should hear, listen to that programme if they want to ken more about that in-depth history. But to answer your question, here in Scotland today, I think most folks would think of a wall garden as being something that was built in the Georgian period in the reign of George I through to George IV, kind of roughly 1714 to 1837. For example, the one mighty big engine of life is Arcoit, which is Amesfield Wall Garden in East Lothian. It was designed by a fella called John Henderson in the 1780s. Interestingly, he claimed the title and the lands for his brother, the sixth earl, who had to give them up because he sided with the Jacobites in uh, 1745. 
And I think that maybe has an interesting point there as to why the gardens laid out in the design of Union Jack, but it's mm. eight acres in size. Again, the early wall gardens for the Georgian time were always very big and quite often built further away from the house. But nearer to our own time, the pinnacle of achievement for wall gardens in Scotland and in fact across the whole of Britain, the ends that were created by the Victorian gardeners and the Victorian engineers, they were often smaller in size, but they were no less built for purpose. You know, they were enclosed spaces with walls about usually about 10 feet high, a wee bit higher if they had to support a lean-to glasshouse. They came in a range of sizes, but normally what you saw was the ends built out of bricks that were between one and two acres, and they would have a special coping stone on them that sloped the water away, or maybe even a fancy terracotta tile. And the wall, you know, it, it, as I say, it could have been 10 feet high or even higher if it had to support a lean-to glasshouse. And then the other thing that you saw was the kind of thing that was made with, a, you know, like a dry-stained dike to the side of a farmhouse mm. or next to the schoolhouse, again, while the dominie abided and you'd have been dared to go and scrumping for apples when you were a loon, just as I did on <laughs> occasions, but that's another story. That's another story. You know, so wall gardens meant different things at different times, but I think most of us today, great big brick edifice, purpose-built for growing plants with a greenhouse in the middle. And that, that's what most of us conceive as them as being. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I think it, it, when we were speaking about this and how the shapes sometimes change, that my own wall garden here is, you know, my pride and joy, but it took 25 years to understand just how the whole thing worked. And Willie Duncan, our favourite gardener of advice, it helped me to try and understand how it was shaped. And it was various walls at either side. The walls go down one level and then a lovely wee roundy bit into another level and then into another wee roundy bit into the smallest wall, which is opposite the 12-foot wall. Now, I thought it was just bonniness they did that for. No, Willie says, no, 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 no. <laughs> they weren't that keen on bonniness. Well, they were, but in a different way. They made it that way, Frida, to let the frost out. And I didn't think about that. Oh. The frost comes in, but you have to, you know, the, the wars, in a way, set up so that the frost can get out. Right, next question. How did it fit into the land, though? Are they all the same shape? I mean, I've, I've seen mine's a different shape. No, no. I mean, you've described the shape of yours, which clearly had the walls designed and laid out in a certain way to trap as much heat as possible, but to let the cold air away. If you... Think about the ones that were built in that Georgian era. They were often built far away from the house and screened with woodland, mm. such as you would see at Colain. If you think about others, sick as the inn, you would see at Inverview, where it follows the shape of the bay and the shape of the drive. It's within walking distance of the house. Basically, wherever they were built, they were made and placed to make the most of the microclimate, and their orientation was such that it could trap the maximum amount of Suddenly, if they were built on a slope, it was very important to have an air drain at the bottom of the garden. Now, that could have been a hole in the wall with a cast iron grill on it that stopped vermin from getting in but allowed the air out, or it could just have been a garden gate that didn't quite fit and just had a bit of wire netting at the bottom. But you need to let the cold air escape on a slope. And, you know, as regards the size, the general thought was one acre would feed 10 to 12 folk all year round. And, I mean... It's funny, thinking about this question about shape, you know, most of them were square or rectangular. They were made to fit into the contours of the land. Quite often in the West Highlands, there's no big areas of flat land. They were tighter and smaller and maybe had an odd corner in them. And, you know, basically what drove it was a combination of money, 
and the space available, the size of the household, and you know whether they was a requirement for glass houses and conservatories and winter gardens and sick like. You know, and, and in a way, too, for a lot of the folk that had them, there was something about status. Mm -hmm. you know, there, was a wee bit, there was a wee bit of that. And then, of course, practicality. It was all very well the man that's paying the bill wanting status and wanting this and wanting that, but it was the heat gardener that had to make yeah. it happen. And these heat gardeners, they were horticulturalists, they were engineers, they were florists, they were gardeners, they were propagators, they were designers, they were artisans, and quite often they were very literate. And, you know, they wrote and published a lot about what they did and how they thought about it. Right. Now, you touched on something there. Were the Scots more innovative than other folks? A ruin, just a ruin their construction, even. Well, I don't think it would be fair to say they were mere inventive, but you could say that they were leaders in the field. I mean, things like air drains we spoke about, flues and heated walls, where they actually built the wall and there was chimneys and ducts within the wall so that they could light a fire at the back and the warm air could flow up inside wow. the wall to stop the fruit on the front from getting frosted. Sometimes they even had outshot glass covers with a rolling screen on the front of them. The Scots invented propagation frames and pits and complex ways of growing things like pineapples and capturing fresh water for dipping ponds and oh, they made stove hooses mm -hmm. and temperate hooses and you know, there was Scots that invented things like the cast iron glazing bar and, you know, steam boilers and hot water pipes and specialist ranges for growing grapes and mm. peaches. You know, I don't think it's fair to say we were more inventive, but we were definitely leaders in the field. I mean, there's fewer folk in particular, Walter Nicol, who we spoke about the other day in his book, The Scotch Force and Gairdner, published in 1809, kind of paved the way and then Loudon and the glazing bar and the heating systems and then a fella Charles Martintosh came for Aberkearney he worked on a lot of big estates in England before he came back to Scotland when he, he came back to work for the Duke of Clue. and he was a clever man a, a, a studious man and a, a prolific writer and he wrote a book called The Practical Gardener and Modern Horticulturalist, two volumes, a beautifully illustrated publication. Wonderful thing. If I can't half what was in it, I could call myself a gardener. Mm. And another book, The Greenhouse, Hot House and Stove, which I, I, I was aware of, but I'd kind of forgotten about. And as a result of doing this, I come across it again. And I'm, I'm just, I'm new gone looking for a copy. It's, it, it's, it's an awful fascinating thing. And then William Watson, he's, he's, he's an interesting fella. He was originally for Liverpool. And then he worked his way up for being an ordinary gardener to become the curator of Q. He was curator of Q for 20 years. But he has a connection with Scotland that goes way back because he revised Robert Thompson's book, The Gardener's Assistance. He revised that. Now, Robert Thompson was born at Echt near Aberdeen. And Watson's revised work was republished in 1902 in six volumes. It's it's a wonderful thing. You know, you often see it in second-hand bookshops for a few pounds. Then he dismiss it because it really is a, a, a marvellous six-volume publication, you know, with a mine of information, much of which is still, you know, relevant today. And, you know, I think okay, you've just got to mention folk like Mackenzie and Munker in the passing, you know, they built some of the most marvellous wooden glass houses that you'll see if you go into Killeen or you go into Crathus, they're still there the day. And if you want to kind of mare about these innovations and folk, as I say, on the last Scots radio we did, number 89, 
There's a lot there about the great conservatories and winter gardens. It, it's all grand stuff. It's part of Scotland's history that deserves to be celebrated absolutely, more than it has absolutely. been. Now, you mentioned Echter. Do you mind Ronald Smith, where we worked with and broadcast with a lot in the early days, uh, broadcasting days? He was for Dunecht. Well, the next an interesting place because there was quite a few people that I know that started their training in the great estate at Dunecht. You know, the, these big estates, they set young men on a path for life and a path that opened doors, as it did in my case. I mean, I, I was fortunate. I, I got the remains of the day of these big estates and it shaped the way that my career developed right to this point. We spoke about uh, Willie Duncan. You can, uh, and, uh, well, Willie was another it. one, yeah, you but know. But Ronald, I remember, he appeared and Max, his shoes were his shiny bonnie and he had his waistcoat and his suit and his gold chain for his watch and his waistcoat. And he always raised his hat. Good morning, Frida. Good morning. There was just this wealth of knowledge in Ronald. And he told me the story about how he felt. It was his job to keep the fires burning in the winter in the wharf and they had the, you know, the fires inside the wall. Oh, that's right, garden. for the heated flues. And, for the and he right. fell asleep. He fell asleep in the morning, early morning with the cow. And he let the fire go out. And he said he'll never forget the row he got. It wasn't just the row he got. Quite quite a severe ticking off, shall we say, the, the heat gardener for that. But as a young loon, you can just imagine him getting up nearly on the frosty morning, just falling asleep and letting the fire go out, and then realising that he'd done. It's like the wars, the wars weren't a warm anymore. Then mm. mm. one of the heat gardener was annoyed because that mishap could have resulted in the entire loss of a you know, the crops of pears mm, and apples for I that think it did. But that's that thing about attention to detail and doing what you tell. Doing what you tell. <laughs> right, thank you, Mr Dave. We'll look forward to the WAS part two. Now, we're loping through the season and we're into the Hairston time. Here and our usual carry-ons will wither. But this is when we wander about, ruin the garden to pick up a few salaries and herbs and tomatoes, maybe some carrots, Santa back, happy in our Hairst. Aye, <laughs> right, some of us are happy in our hairs. <laughs> okay, most of us this year are here to watch the water levels and the night temperatures and the heat temperatures. You know what, it's, it's, it's a fair job. But time for another Oarain recipe. Since our cook, Claire Patterson, is half on holiday, we thought we'd surprise you with some of our recipes for your own kitchen garden. So, the second to try to impress us is our own heat mariner, Richie Werner of that ilk. Richie gives your first recipe. Ah, Jingzo. So that's interesting you talk about sauntering through and starting to, to, to harvest things. Because some of the things you might put in your truck might be a couple of small leaks. And <laughs> you'll need a couple of small leaks for this next one. We're getting into that time of the year where it's going to start getting chillier, believe it or no. And the leaves are going to start dropping and we might need a wee, a wee bit of heat in our tummies. So one of the ways that my family's always done that, and this is one of the, the two soups that I grew up with, and it never did me any harm, is cockaliki. Uh, and this is going right back to one of my great auntie's recipes. So brace yourself. I think this is one of Scotland's oldest soups as well. I think it maybe came from France in the 1500s, believe it or no. And uh, we swapped those wee French ingans with leeks at some point. So uh, my measures will be a bit off because it's all by eye and it's all by feel. Uh, but here we go. So uh, take it with a pinch of salt. <laughs> so get yourself a nice wee handful of chicken thighs. You want thighs because you want those nice fatty thighs. Ooh, so I think three or four. I don't know. Get them into a medium pan. Cover them with cold water. Make sure it's cold. Uh, maybe a wee sprinkle of salt. So uh, maybe a couple of pints, I think. Slowly bring that to the boil and simmer away. 
Now into that stock that we're making, we'll go a couple of trimmed small leeks, or a medium one, chop it how you like. I like rounds, or you can maybe cut them smaller. And a wee pinch of white pepper does need any harm to get a bit of flavour. Now check your stock, make sure it's all happening. You might need to modify it at this stage. If it's a bit watery, you might want to, this is one of my wee tricks, put in a wee concentrated dilution of Swiss vegetable bouillon stock. I love that stuff. So a wee silver bullet for all sorts of soups and maybe a wee dash of soy sauce if you're feeling brave. But you might know day either because that's not very traditional. <laughs> so uh, follow your taste buds and uh, season to taste. Now meanwhile, now this is the trick. In a separate wee pan off to the side, get yourself boiling a small portion of long grain rice. Now it's got to be separate because you want to get rid of all of that starch. You don't want to have all that starch in the soup. So once that's cooked, get a drain, get a rinse and add it to what's happening with the chicken and all that. Right, once we're there, out come your thighs, shred off that lovely meat and get them back in. And you know what? At that point, get a wee taste and I think you're good to go. And you know what you could do? Yeah. You could garnish it. Now, this is a weird one. I did this the other night. You could garnish it with prunes. <laughs> I've never heard of that before. I didn't need to do that. But if you fancy it, you can give that a go. And then that'll keep you going. Oh, what a lovely bowl of soup. <laughs> you put down any kale into that? Well, well, see, I, 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 don't, I just keep it dead simple. That's how my great auntie done it. And that's how we've always done it. So you see things like folk will put in tatties and carrots and maybe kale and all that. You're getting more towards a chicken broth at that stage, I think. So I keep it dead simple if you want it cock-a-leaky. But uh, why not? If you feel like, you know, mixing it up, I do that with my soups all the time, then, you know, go ahead. Why not? Well, I think I'll try that. Huh? I, I think that, I, that it's interesting, the sort of regional variations that there are around things like oh, that as well. big time. Yeah. I think that for me, kale's nice. The only thing it does is put a bit of colour in it. I think what I would rather do is just serve it and put a big handful of fresh parsley in it. Oh, know? yeah. It goes well with a nice dough of parsley. Oh, that yeah, sets it, it off, actually. It, yeah. yeah, it's funny. The simple recipes are the best. Honestly, it's banging, and it's it's been going on for generations. That one, it would have originated in Fife. That variation back in the day. So there you go. It's a King Lassie it, variant. It, <laughs> I'm taken with the enthusiasm by which we are speaking about food as usual. Maybe we should just do a food program. Oh, yeah, just, maybe, <laughs> just say, oh, and there's bits of garden kind of. Maybe that's what we're doing. Just no. It's not as fancy as what it clears, but it's got everything no, you need. No, it's not fancy, but it's really nice. Thank you, Richie. Very well. Okay, been. we'll be back for your second recipe in a couple of texts. Oh, speaking, of, speaking of texts, speaking of texts, there's enough, a lot of them are good to know, so watch out for wee blighters. They cling onto land grass or anything when you're in there and attach themselves to your legs in seconds. Oh, no good. Dear. And they can be dangerous, man. Right, we're speaking about climate change and the different signs of climate change in our sister programme, Scotch Radio. And I mentioned that I hadn't seen any grasshoppers this year. And I kind of mind when I last saw them. Maybe not important in the wider world of things that are going on going about us. But little things like that make a difference. Only thing you've noticed, Richie, that has changed. Well, the insect world, I've, I've had a real nasty attack by a swarm of clegs. <laughs> No. and I got a bit in the shreds I had, to, I had to get an antibiotic my hand was up like a balloon so no. I've never had that before even more vicious than usual clegs goodness me only thing you've noticed Dave that have, uh, has changed yeah it, it's funny I expected on the opposite end of things I expected to see a lot more red spider mite this year because it loves hot dry conditions oh. and it's it's just no been about you know and then you were talking about grasshoppers as it were and just that got me thinking that the last time I spent a lot of time in the company of grasshoppers was when I was taking photographs 
doing in Wigtonshire and the Loose Bay area about four or five years ago. But I've also noticed this year there's not been as many butterflies. Aye. Um, I, I've, no, been, right. I've, been, I've been hunting for butterflies. Aye, that's you know? true. So, yeah, these, these little, tiny little things are a lens on things that are going on you know, much bigger stuff in the way it's impacting on the world. Uh, do food or plants adapt to the, to the extreme heat? Can you tell us about that? Well, it would take a wee minute or two to talk about that, Frida, because there's a lot there, but plants have an awful lot of tricks up their sleeve. You know, some of them are physiological, others are biochemical, some are morphological, some are even at a molecular level. At a very simple level, they include things like just saying, it's too hot, I'm going to shed my leaves and that'll reduce transpiration. And I've noticed that with a lot of the trees round about our garden, they've been dropping leaves over the summer. But much less extreme would be plants that develop a thick waxy cuticle on their surface to reduce the transpiration. Others actually hide their stomata or breathing pores on the underside of the leaf away from the direct sunlight. Quite a few of them can even roll their leaves up on a hot day to reduce their surface area even further. But then if you think about things for Mediterranean areas, Mediterranean climates, plants like lavender, mm. they actually have got fine hairs all over the leaf that cast a shadow and help to reduce air movement and keep it cool. They also have volatile oils evaporate from the plant, reducing the heat and helping it to survive. Plants with hairy leaves would include things like lamb's lugs and Jerusalem sage, that's the Stachus lanata and the Flomus russelliana, respectfully. They're good examples. But if you look at things like dwarf rhododendrons, like rhododendron impedium, rhododendron a wee bit bigger, Augustinii, you know, the, the lepidotes that come from the high mountains of the Himalayas, if you took a hand lens and looked at the surface of their leaves, you would see that they're covered in tiny scales called trichonomes that are thought also to help reduce water loss. And then there's the rhododendron Yacusumanum hybrids. You know, they've got them big, thick, waxy leaves that have that thick cuticle. But on the underside of the leaf, they've also got a kind of woolly fibre that helps to protect the stomata. And, you know, talking about the tropics and other parts of the world, if you look at plants that come from these areas, a lot of them, their young leaves actually are loaded with red anthocyanin pigments and they actually deflect the harmful UV light. Many plants do things that you can't see. Some of them are able to alter their metabolism. Others produce things called HSPs, heat shock proteins that allow them to stabilize the inside of their plant and cope with extreme temperatures. Others just shut down altogether and go dormant, especially things like yams. And then you've got others that have developed big storage organs like baobabs where their stems all swell up. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, we think about the cacti and the succulents on your windowsill. That's what most folk think of when they think about, mm -hmm. mm. you know, plants in the heat. But they're very specialised things because they have a technique. It's got a terrible name. It's called crassulase acid metabolism. Gosh. And what that does is it alters the C4 pathway inside the plant and it allows them to keep their stomata shut during the day, even although they're photosynthesizing, and then only open those stomata at night so that they can exchange gas, get rid of oxygen, oh, and, and bring in the CO2. But then if you think about cacti, they've no leaves aye, in aye. the main. Their leaves have adapted in many cases to become 
fine, fine spines or long needles that curve. These needles are rather special because if when you're in the desert, as I've been, if you go out in the morning when it's really cool, just before the sun gets up, you quite often find that there's a dew and the dew drops are on the tips of the needles of the cactus. That dew, that tiny little bit of dew just drips down to the edge and, and the plant's obviously able to capture it with its roots. But the cactus's stem is actually its leaf. That's the bit that photosynthesizes. Uh -huh. So they're, they're very complex organisms. And one that just completely blew my mind a number of years ago when I found out about it was a thing called Pinus caribia, the Caribbean pine. It has high concentrations of resin in its bark that work like tiny fire extinguishers. So when a bushfire comes through, the bark goes pop, 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 and it snuffs out the, the, the fire and stops the, the fire from actually taking a hold on the bark. You know, the innovation in nature goes on and on. Things like eucalyptus have big, special, woody lignotubers that are under the ground. So when a bushfire comes through, if it gets burnt and drops to the ground, it just goes fine. I can cope with that. And it sprouts away for the base. Incredible. But even more amazing is some of the South African proteas, they need heat and fire to enable them to germinate. Because... When the fire comes through, there's natural cyanides produced in the blaze. And that cyanide is actually part of the process that breaks down the protective endocarp so that the radical can escape out of the seed and actually take roots. And you know, I just read something when you asked me about this the other day, and I thought, I'll see what's going on that's up to date. And there's even new evidence that suggests that plants such as Aridopsis can actually change their shape and change their architecture to allow them to adapt and survive. I think there's lots to learn about this. We know a lot about it, but there's a lot more to learn. And I think plants are often, they are much better at adapting and coping with extremes of heat than ourselves. Mm -hmm. And fundamental to that, plants realize that water is the currency of life. Without water, there is no life. And plants go out of their way to use only what they need, to preserve what they've got, and to live in harmony with the world that gives them the water, the gift of life. Thank you, Mr. Dave. That is just a perfect place to say, there we will leave it, because we know the value of water. We maybe don't know it yet, but... Perhaps water will become more important than oil one of these days. Mm. Oh, I, I wouldn't be surprised, Frida. Mm. I wouldn't be you surprised. never know. No. We're going to work you hard this episode, Mr. Mr. Dave. Ah, it's, all clear, it's all Claire's fault because she's <laughs> not here. Blame. I tell you, I don't know. Tuck it out on the gear now. Because <laughs> on the subject of reacting to heat, any of the best remedies, so I'm told, is called soup. So, Lord Dave says that any of his favourites is Carl Soup. Over to you again with your next... Is this your first recipe? I'm losing count. This is my first, this is my first bit of my Gairdner Summer's Feast. Oh, a Summer's oh. Feast. Oh. And it's, it's easy to make. It's it's nice and simple and easy to make. Okay. But I, I love cold soups. And I, I first started to eat them a lot when I worked on an expedition ship in the tropics. And I don't think we use them enough in the UK. But this simple soup that I have for you... Is a pea and lovage soup. It can be served all year round, either hot or cold. 
It's really refreshing, just in a glass with a sprig of mint. It's named my recipe. It's thanks to Mark Hicks. It came from his book, British Seasonal Food Cookbook. It's beautiful. Now, I'm not going to give you a list of ingredients. If you want to mark this, you'll just take a listen to the recipe. <laughs> First of all, you tuck a tablespoonful of vegetable oil and you put it in a decent-sized pan. And when it's hot, you gently cook the white and the green part of a decent-sized leek that's been roughly chopped and washed before you put it in the pan. And you cook it for about three to four minutes. After that, second step, 1.2 litres of vegetable stock with some of that Swiss bouillon that Richie was Whoa. talking about. I put a <laughs> tablespoon of that in and all. And then you simmer that leek and the vegetable stock for about 10 or 12 minutes. You're nearly done. All you need to do then is add 450 grams of freshly potted peas. I just use frozen ones, which are just as good, and that allows you to make it all year round. You bring it back to the boil and you simmer it for five minutes. The final step is to take it off the heat and add 10 or 12 fresh lovage leaves. Then you let it cool and you put it through the blender and you can either reheat it to serve it or you can just let it go cool and put it in the fridge. And the reason you take it off the heat before you put the lovage in, it stops it from going better and it traps oh. that really licorice flavour on oil. It's a fantastic thing, a lovely recipe. Summer begins and ends with that for us and it's even on the menu in the winter. Oh, I really fancy that. You see, yeah. you get that kind of talents that we have until we're forced. We're forced to try and find recipes like this. That was a lovely recipe. That that book of Marks is is full a lot of good stuff. It's, it really is. But that's that's a cook that's got you know, like many cooks, he's got a real relationship with seasonality and with the land and with good food and with keeping things simple. Okay, right. Need to move on. Uh, last week, I had the pleasure of seeing Ruin the Eight Acre Wall Garden at Gordon Castle. And what an experience that was. It is stunning. Full of lovely planting for wildlife and vegetables of all kinds, beautifully bordered with my favourite natural pesticide method, tagetus, and pots of tagetus in the greenhouse under the tomatoes. Marigolds as well, just love it. Now, that just reminds us of what a magical structure a wall garden is. And the skill that went into their bidding. Now, we're ready for Wall Gardens episode two for Dave again. First of all, do you think they're still important, the Wall Gardens still important, to communities nowadays? Well, that's difficult to answer, Frida, especially as Wall Gardens are different things in different parts of the country. You know, there's no yin answer cover all, you know? A lot depends on how it's managed, who owns it, and what its function is. What we can say about them, I think, is that our relation has changed for they were at their zenith in the Georgian and Victorian era, you know, and they were centres of sustainability for big country houses in the States, especially as regarding fruit and veg, and, you know, they employed a lot of folk in the days, sometimes as many as 15 men and boys all year round, gaining them a chance to learn and get new skills. They were definitely engines of life that drove the community, you know, there's no doubt about that. My own career began in a place like that, as I've said before. But we are seeing examples again where the National Trust for Scotland and other organisations are providing apprenticeships that provide opportunities in wall gardens. And some of the gardens in the private sector also provide help with that and student placements and other things. So there are opportunities out there again for people to get that chance to learn skills. 
and communities. I'm thinking more about communities uh, owning or, or Takanura law there. I mean, as, as time goes on and our budgets are more and more squeezed, there's been a bigger and bigger demand for allotments, as we heard just near that long ago, of course, that Scottish government are putting in for, you know, mere land to become available for allotments, Dave, and, and good on them. I, I think in communities where wall gardens are cared for or run or managed by volunteers, they are cherished and very much valued. And there's another aspect of that, you know, in communities where wall gardens have children's play areas in them, for example, mm-hmm. as you would see at Brodie and New Hills, you know, families and young children will often go to these places and as a result of going there regularly, they develop a deeper connection with them and a deeper connection with heritage. And that early learning opportunity for heritage is important and others where you have got community orchards and community allotments sometimes with farm shops and tea and coffee shops they will be deeply valued and regularly used by people in ways that would never have been mm. imagined by our forefathers i mean if you think about places like the softton wall garden yeah. in edinburgh where the cali has its base or places such as floor castle or gordon castle that you were at the other day you know the way these gardens are used now will be important and meaningful and valuable to those who use them and to the community around about. There is a sort of, I'm not going to say a renaissance, but I think there's a start of one. I think the broadest answer I can give you is no matter what wall gardens do, when they're reinvented and managed well, they remain important for the sustainability of a community and the business model used by its current owner. We're still lucky to have them and we need them more than ever especially as the nation examines food security and we need to learn to grow more food of our own locally and much more effectively. Good on you, right. Thank you. Richie, Hiya. Richie, have you got another recipe for the weather? I actually do, and thinking about things that we're ready to collect off of trees and off of the garden and whatnot, uh, we were talking about pears and apples in the walled garden there, right? So, again, one of the things I've got uh, is in my garden, what? it's really quite cool, I've got a crab apple tree. Oh, it's a great thing. It's a good pollinator as well, I believe, for other apples. Uh, I see them quite a lot in allotments around about Edinburgh, so kinfolk have got them, and I don't care if they're using the, the, the beautiful wee apples that come off them. So another thing that my family did, apart from that lovely kokoliki, was we've always made jams and jellies, and crab apples pretty much top of that list. So I want to talk about crab apple jelly, if I may. Yep. Now, my grand might tell you, it's a slaster to make. She says it every time she makes it. Oh, it's an offy slaster, son. So I've got a funny <laughs> feeling that her uh, auntie fame called it a slaster. Uh, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so uh, we're going to talk about extracting the juice. We're going to take our harvested apples and uh, into your largest pot or uh, your perhaps your jam pot. In it, in it goes and you cover all those lovely apples with cold water. So stew them slowly up to boil and simmer for ages. The apples will break down all by themselves. Get a wee stir, but don't be tempted to splat the ones that are still whole because it might ruin how clear your final jelly is and we're all about that clarity, that clearness in the jelly. So, once the stewed apples are ready, now you can win. Now here comes the messy part. I'm thinking this is a slastery bit. Hi. We've got to get out our jelly bag and everyone's got a different method for this, don't they? So uh, I actually hang mine off a cymbal stand. That's quite handy. I've seen people hang a, a, a walking <laughs> stick over two chairs. Now wait a minute, back a bit Back a bitty, back a bitty. A symbol stands for your drum kit. That's yeah. good and solid, isn't it? Oh, like what Abdi has in my, the My grand uses her, 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 her walking sticks. 
<laughs> in between two chairs. <laughs> it's like always chairs. a bit sugary, yeah. but we get there in the end. But anyway, you want to get you want to get mm-hmm. your your bag suspended, and it has to be a jelly bag. A tea towel will need a so uh, and get yourself a decent catch pail or a tray underneath because you're going to be leaving it a long time. Fill up your jelly bag and you leave it to drip away overnight. Now, here's what I love. This is my favourite bit of the whole thing because you'll get this nice, crisp, slightly opaque pinkish juice and it's loaded with pectin which uh, in itself has a load of other uses in the kitchen so you can bottle it and refrigerate it and we'll get ready to to take this extraction and make our our beautiful jelly so on to the jelly i do small batches because i like doing things that way two to three pints at a time now there's a one-to-one ratio for juice to, to to sugar so it's a pound of sugar to a pint of juice in old money because that's the way i've been taught so there you go, into your jam pan, or your largest soup pan or whatever, goes your juice. You bring that nearly to the boil, and just when it's all nice and warm and just about tickling away, get your sugar in there. Another one of my favourite bits, enjoy that aroma, because it's incredible. Uh, get in there a juice of one lemon, bring it to a rolling boil, and uh, get yourself a knob of butter in there at this time, or maybe a wee touch of oil if you want to keep it vegan, and this helps keep any foaming down. We didn't want all that foam going into our nice setting jelly. Mm-hmm. Have a teaspoon ready. This is your wee scientific friend. You're going to dip them in there and lift them out, and as it cools, have a wee look at it. Oh, is it starting to set? Is it running? So it'll be setting pretty quick. So once it's starting to do that, get yourself off the heat. In your oven, you've got all your jam jars up to a nice temperature so they don't crack when you're pouring your jelly. Set them out and get yourself pouring, and be quick because it will set into the, into the pan if you're not careful. But my goodness, that's a beauty. And you know what? That method also works really well with quince. So if you've got loads of quince kicking about, get yourself some quince jelly on the go. And you can also chuck in brambles into your crab apple stew and you can get a nice uh, variation on that as well. So there you go. Oh, oh, it's an amazing you, thing. I'm just amazed. I, I've actually tasted some of your crab apple. And uh, thank you, Richard, because <laughs> I think welcome. a lot of folk I've got Access to crab apples, but they just didn't get to deal with them. I didn't care what to deal with them. Okay. Yeah. Crab apple jelly is wonderful. Oh, it's the best. Oh, I want new Richie is a big lump of runny brie. Oh, there you go. Oh. There you go. It's just heaven, dream isn't it? Time. It is. It's dream time. Food dream program. time. We need the discipline. <laughs> we need Claire here to hold us together because we're just getting right. Another gardening question. Oh, I. Many, many, many years ago, Mr. David Mitchell arrived with his better half, Kate, bearing a gift. A rose that has become one of my all-time favourites in the garden, a rose card, Rosa Ramblin' Rector. And fit a rambler it has been this year. And fit a scent. Huge bunches of wee white roses with five petals. Right, my question. Foo and fan, can I tack curtains, Dave? I mine again of that rose. It's an awful lovely rose. It has a kind of musky scent that reminds you of cloves. Mm. It was put on the market, I think, by Daisy Hill Nursery in Northern Ireland about 1912, and it's it's widely grown and widely available today. It's a grand choice for any garden. But as regards taking cuttings of it, you can do hardwood cuttings taken in November, and you want pieces of this year's growth, a bit thicker than a pencil and about 15 inches long. What you want to do is cut them off, put a sloping cut at the top, and a straight cut at the bottom, and then take the thorns off for the bottom eight inches. And then just either side of the base, just scrape a wee bit of the waxy cuticle away to expose the cambium on either side, about quarter of an inch wide for about two inches up for the base. Dip it in some hormone powder, and then all you need to do is go out into the garden, maybe at the foot of a wall or the side of a frame, you make a slit trench. You can even do it in open ground. Put a wee bit of sharp sand in the bottom, and then 
put your cuttings into it about three to four inches apart, fill it in and press gently round about it. And no kicking, leave it alone <laughs> until you see signs of life in the spring, you know, when you can lift them and pot them up. And the best tip I can do is when you come and mark your slit trench, put a plank along the side of it to stand on, and that plank also helps to support the cuttings as you put them in. And also, uh, I, I would tuck maybe 10 or 12 more than you need, just in case some of them didn't take. Right. But easy mm -hmm. today, brilliant, lovely rose, mere what power to your elbow. And I'm glad I got something right when I give you that. I must have I must, I must, <laughs> must have had a good day. I was very appreciative. And in fact, it's a it's lovely just, rose. It really is a Oh, the amount of folk have just admired it. You know, it's in the courtyard, but if I, where we usually sit with and he, or barbecues and things, and, and it just has gone right across the wall. And it's near a, a, a south facing wall, it's not a north facing wall. I quite like the fact that we don't know its parentage. We don't know what the parents are really. It's Nobody's willing to be too definite about it. We're not really sure of its origin, but it's called the Ramblin' Rector. The Ramblin' Rector. Interesting. Interesting. It's a lovely thing. Well, thank you very, very, very much about that again. Now, um, favourite plants, Richie? Aye. Have you got any favourite plants in the garden? Oh, that's a really tough question, but I'll maybe talk about a couple that have maybe caught my eye recently and what I've been interested in. I mentioned my nana quite a lot on this episode. She's got a lovely garden down in the borders there. A couple of things that I really love in that garden is a big Canadian roost tree. And what's interesting, Dave was talking about kind of fur or, or hairs on, 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 on plants and leaves and whatnot. Bruce is lovely. It's got those uh, those wee hairs coming off the stem and they're, they're really nice to touch. I love touching them when I was a kid and rubbing them and that, you know. But the foliage is amazing. And when it drops, it goes all these amazing colours. It's got a real showy flower and a real showy fruit. Come kind of this time of year, actually. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, I'm trying to get a cutting to take. Funny you talk about cuttings just now, Dave. Uh, we'll see how that goes. So I'm very, very mad on that. It's a really good example outside Aberdour train station, actually, in a bed there. There's a, lo a load of them. They're beautiful. Now, the other thing that's caught my eye recently is a wee alpine, also from my nana's garden, but I love it. It'll just grow anywhere that's rocky, and it's it's a happy wee thing. It's a wee sort of mossy saxifrage, you know. It's, it looks like it's moss, maybe sphagnum me, but out of this, it's maybe a bit paler, the leaves. Out of this comes little star-like flowers, and it's just abundant with them earlier in the year. It'll just grow anywhere that you've got a wee bit of rocky ground or a wee bit of rocks or anything, or onto your path a wee bit, you know. It's a wee cracker. I love that. Right. <laughs> Dave, your moment has arrived again. To complete the Gardner's summer feast, what have you got this time? Well, 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 well. I don't know. I don't make this very often because it's a it's a wee bit of indulgent, but it's off a good and it's a Delia Smith recipe. It's a I think it's her spin on a French classic called Poulet au Vinegar, and it's basically chicken and sherry vinegar with a tarragon sauce, and it's for our summer collection cookbook. It's one of those dishes for me and our household that marks the arrival of summer. And it's so simple to make, and I serve it with either a green salad and some new minted potatoes or some steamed green beans and brown rice. And it's very easy to make. The first step that you need to do is take two tablespoons of olive oil and put them in a large pan that has a thick base and start to heat that oil up and then while it's heating up season eight chicken joints with a little black pepper and salt and i usually use thighs 
um, but you could use drumsticks just as well. And then once the oil is simmering, put them in the pan a few at a time and then lift them out once they're browned on all sides and put them aside on a plate. Once you've done all that, the next thing to do is to take 12 peeled whole shallots as well as four peeled garlic cloves. Turn the heat down and return the chicken to the pan and then put the tarragon leaves in it to join the shallots and the garlic that have been in the oil for a few minutes and then pour over 150 mils of sherry vinegar and 425 mils of sherry. Oh. And that, that's why I didn't make it often because it's a wee bit of indulgent. Oh, yes. Um, and then turn the heat down and, you know, you can let the whole thing bubble away for 45 minutes and just turn the chicken halfway through. So, you know, it, it, it it's really simple to do. You can then take the chicken out and the shallots out and put them in a serving dish mm. and then just leave the sauce in there. It'll have reduced a wee bit by then. If you want, you can reduce it a wee bit more or you can just add a generous tablespoon of creme fraiche into it, check the seasoning, pour it over the chicken and that's it. It's ready to serve. Oh, Done boy. Wow. That sounds good. It's really nice. You know, what could be simpler? Browning a few chicken joints, yeah. browning your shallots and your onions, putting the chicken back in the pan with the tarragon, the sherry vinegar and the sherry, let it boil, take it out, stick in the sauce with the creme fraiche, pour it over the top, and away you're done. And they put a lid on it. Oh, yeah. You've got to put, you've got to put a lid on these things. I mean, the lid's eating mess. Only 500 grams of strawberries oh. and a bit of double cream. And if you haven't got pomegranate juice, put some orange juice in it, stir it up, slap it on a plate. Ah, oh, brilliant. Dream time. Okay. Gone <laughs> in Nirvana. Right, before we go, We've got a mind to do list that's on your oh, mind to do mind list. Mind to Sit down after you've had a feast and order your raspberries, bear root and black currants, bear root and peruse a bulb catalogue so you can get your bulbs in time to plant them in October and November. Put your sun hat down and fall asleep. Lucky you've got your jobs done, I can tell. <laughs> no. When's the last time you, you put your, your hat down and fell asleep in the that's garden? just doesn't happen. <laughs> It just does not I'm happen, halfway you know. through giving my crab apple a haircut, so I better get that finished. <laughs> it's been shooting like crazy. You've got to mind, there's no point of working hard in the gear and not to take the odd afternoon in it and enjoy it. Oh, that's true. That is very true. That's what it's there we, for after all. We dream. The room outdoors, dream. Dave. The room outdoors, filled with good food, topped off with eating mess and a power nap. What more do you want? <laughs> Brilliant. Okay. And that, ladies and gentlemen, brings us to the end of this episode. So, hope you've enjoyed the dinner around the garden and the kitchen. And join us again. No matter if you've just started, we've all been there. And then up it off. Just get into your garden and your pots. Now, here's the email address. If you want to send in some questions and send in your emails, it's info at growradio.com. Info at growradio.com. And you can find our record button on our webpage as well if you want to record your, your questions. That's on www.growradio.com as well. So, are you ready, lads? Hi. On behalf of the team, Dave Mitchell and Richie Werner and myself, Rita Morrison, enjoy your garden. Bye, the new. Bye, Bye the new.